It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So a quick show of hands. Has anyone here been fired from the Homeland Security Department in the last week? Because there's been a lot. <laughs> yeah, all of us. You, we should you, check. I feel sh- like if you work for Homeland Security, you should like you should make sure before you go into the office that you still work there. Yeah, Just I save apparently yourself was the a deputy assistant secretary and didn't. Even yeah, know. you mm-hmm. didn't even know. Mm-hmm. No, were you Senate confirmed? Um, you know, I think it's pending. <laughs> Yeah. Not just anymore. Acting, acting gives so much more flexibility. <laughs> I do need my clearance, though, if we could get on that, please. That would be big help. This episode of Rational Security is supported by Blinkist, giving you key ideas from best-selling nonfiction distilled by experts into bite-sized text and audio. Get a free seven-day trial at Blinkist.com RS. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Purge edition. I'm Shane Harris, Natalie Dressed, I'm told. Yes, Natalie Dressed, Shane Harris. Yes. And we have a fancy dressed guest, too. We do. Scott Anderson is here looking quite good. He has a high clip Natalie on. Nothing says Scott a full Anderson. suit like 80 degree weather, so <laughs> I am here for it. I do like your tie clip. I was going to wear you. one today, but like because this is kind of a wide tie, I decided to go songs clip. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You can take off your jacket, like Jim Jordan's, just carry it around with you yeah. all Jim, the time. On principle, I shall not. <laughs> <laughs> on principle that you don't want to be like Jim Jordan, on principle that you don't want to. A variety of what does Jim Jordan have against jackets? What, like, what is do jackets that? ever do to Jim Jordan? Just put on a jacket, like, I man. get it with like Beto and Pete Booty Judge and you're out running for like, election, but like the man is, I've never seen him in a jacket. Even no, in fact, I, I have seen him argue with people about jackets. Is he, is he just against them in principle? Well, he's against his wearing them ever. Well, clearly. But yeah, that's true. I guess he hasn't, has he, has he argued at other people for daring I mean, clearly he has wrestled with the question quite a bit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I am here in the New Jungle studio with Ben Wittes. Not Natalie dressed. Susan Hennessy. No, you look I'm not like sorry. a total schlep. She's lovely dressed. <laughs> and Scott Anderson. Hi, everybody. Hi. Uh, Tammy is, Tammy's not in Iraq, right? No, she's, uh, uh, at least as of yesterday, she was in Cleveland. Oh, okay. She might be the acting Secretary of Homeland Security at this point. So. She's auditioning for the job. Currently in the process of being fired as the acting director of Homeland Security. <laughs> On the podcast this week, the White House launches a purge at the Homeland Security Department. Some prosecutors in Robert Mueller's office are frustrated by the Attorney General's portrayal of their report, which we hear is coming within a week. And the Trump administration designates Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a foreign terrorist organization. Let's start with the, the DHS news. So Secretary of Homeland Security Kirsten Nielsen is resigning. I think fair to say was forced out, fired. The president's nominee to head ICE, uh, he pulled him because he said they want to go in a quote-unquote tougher direction. Uh, the president has also decided to remove the director of the Secret Service and we believe there are more firings coming at DHS if they haven't already happened. So it appears there's a purge, even though the president said today that I never said there was a purge. 
uh, which is probably a pretty good indication. That he never said urge. there was a Muslim ban. <laughs> well, yeah. well um, he did say there was. Oh, sorry, he said there was. <laughs> the problem. He said he would do, there was a Muslim ban, but then he denied that his Muslim ban was a Muslim ban. But it was still a Muslim ban. Right. Uh, Banned a lot of Muslims. Yeah. Susan, let me start with you on this. It's not like Secretary Nielsen. Many people thought she was long for this world, um, but uh, there has been a. A surge in people seeking asylum at the southern border. We know that the president has wanted to get tougher. We can talk about that. But what do you, what do you sort of make of this initial wave of what looks to be sort of a, a house cleaning at the top of DHS? And should we make anything of that related to policy? Yeah, so I think first it's worth pausing to note um, that some people might have expected that Christian Nielsen resigned in protest. That appears not to be the case. It seems like she actually uh, clung on to the bitter end, tried very, very hard to keep her job and was fired anyway. Um, So an especially sort of disreputable way to be discharged from this particular uh, administration and, you know, I I think is... uh, demonstrates how fitting uh, a recipient she is for a lot of the criticism that she's currently receiving, although I do think some of the contrast um, in terms of the the degree of criticism of Nielsen, it, it does stand in a little bit of a marked contrast with the lack of criticism of John Kelly. That's a little bit perplexing Do you mean like me. she should have just quit and protest where she opposed some of these policies or – know that um, the idea that um, Christian Nielsen clearly took the position that she was going to lean forward as much as possible on these sort of child separation policies, uh, you know, this really, really aggressive border position. Um, What President Trump appears to be angry with um, is that she was not willing to violate the law. And so one might expect that a cabinet official who was under pressure to do what they believed was in violation of the law would stand up and say, no, and I'm going to quit on principle because it is not okay to violate the law. And instead for her to sort of continue to try and uh, work within this system is, um, I don't think it speaks particularly highly of her personal character or integrity. Um, But getting back to this sort of larger question of, it does appear to be the core and fundamental objection of the White House to the current state of immigration policy is they are not happy with the statutory, domestic statutory framework and, and the requirements of international law. And that is the core source of their frustration. Um, And so it does appear that part of this purge is an effort to clean out any individuals who might have otherwise had no anxiety about implementing both uh, cruel, draconian, and also fundamentally ineffective and inefficient policies, but were not willing to do so outside the parameters of the law. It appears, or, or the suspicion might be, that this is an effort to remove individuals who might have anxiety about sort of wanting to be more more careful or, or thoughtful. And so I do think that it potentially portends something pretty disturbing to come, which is the same impulses driving this policy of sort of attempting to gin up uh, as much of sort of a false sense of urgency and emergency as possible, a clear effort towards sort of attempting a dehumanizing rhetoric really cruelty-driven policies. And uh, I don't think I'm not being rhetorical on that, right? President uh, reportedly has again doubled down on the notion of using child separation as a deterrent, right? So not uh, not the natural consequence of the Flores decision, an unfortunate consequence of the Flores decision that children cannot be detained over 30 days, but instead a proactive policy designed to dissuade individuals from coming to the United States with their children and attempting to seek asylum. And so I think the concern is 
that we're going to see that sort of level of intensity and cruelty, frankly, and that it's no longer going to be tethered or chained within sort of the clear structure of the law, uh, or we're going to see sort of people pushing the boundaries in a more significant way. um, And that tends to be a recipe for real disaster. And Ben, CNN had some reporting on this too, which was very good. Essentially that the president had made it clear to uh, individual, I guess, to the border patrol, you know, you are to turn people away and essentially say there's no more room for you here. And if a judge tells you otherwise, you say in so many words, sorry, judge, this is the way we're doing it. In a sense, ordering law enforcement personnel to violate a judge's order, at least in the hypothetical. So if you are the now acting Homeland Security Secretary or the next person that uh, Trump wants to nominate to head ICE, it seems like you go into this job knowing full well that the president as a, as a requisite might ask you to violate the law. So what do you do? I mean, do you, are you obliged to say, no, thanks, I'm not taking this job? So I think it's a very complicated problem. I, I do think the fundamental division here seems to be between people who want you know, to have very aggressive border control policies but who are not willing to violate the law and people who led by the president who want actually to push legal lines beyond what is apparently legal. And, you know, I have no brief for Kirsten Nielsen, who I think deserves a lot of criticism, but I do think it is significant that she does appear to have lost her job over an unwillingness to do things that were frankly illegal. And I agree with Susan that that raises the question, okay, well, what happens now when you replace her uh, with somebody who both has to satisfy the president and has to take an oath of office to you know, carry out the law, which is, of course, not at the end of the day determined by the president? The most interesting thing to me about that CNN story was that the component of it where those Border Patrol people asked their superiors, what, you know, what do we do now when the, the president has told us this? And they were instructed, you cannot violate the law. And so the Border Patrol actually seems to have been giving and credit to it, to its, its people, you know, a kind of quiet, don't listen to the president, actually follow the law kind of instruction. And so look, if the president is intent on purging the department of anyone who has legal, if not policy or ethical or moral scruples about his policies. We're in for a rough ride over that. And and I think that's, you know, not just at the assistant secretary or acting secretary level, that's going to be down at the individual officer level too, as that story made very clear. I mean, I do think there's a simmering sort of constitutional standoff here as well, which is that the president is firing all of these individuals. He fired uh, Nielsen and then appointed the head of Customs and Border Patrol as the acting or appointed, uh, announced on Twitter that the head of Customs and Border Patrol 
would be the acting DHS secretary in violation of the Vacancies Reform Act. So while it's not clear to what extent the Vacancies Reform Act uh, applied whenever the attorney general was fired or or forced to resign, it is crystal clear the extent to which the Vacancies Reform Act does apply to DHS. There's a difference in the statutory language. The White House had to sort of scramble. They appear to have fired uh, the second in line, Claire O'Grady, in order to get her out of the way, having realized that, oh, no, she is the statutory acting uh, DHS secretary. So we have to fire her so there's no one in that position so we can bring in uh, the head of Customs and Border Patrol to now be there. We've heard the president say that he prefers acting acting cabinet members because it gives him, quote, flexibility. And this has sort of been a, a thing that the media hasn't really picked up. It hasn't sort of come to the forefront. But um, what the president is talking about is is working around the constitutional requirement that he seek the advice and consent of Senate uh, in in these uh, in these important positions, and so the idea that the president is just sort of you know, flagrantly saying, well, like, well, that's a big inconvenience for me. And um, and having to work within this system where I have to go to the Senate and ask them permission to install someone, you know, I'm just going to I'm going to put Matt Whitaker in a in an acting position. I'm going to put whoever I want in acting positions. I'm going to fire people at will and then not nominate anybody new and sort of run the clock. You know, that really is sort of a slap in the face to legislative constitutional prerogatives. And it is I guess nothing should be surprising, but it is pretty surprising to see Congress just kind of say, well, OK, like, I guess you'll get around to, to nominating a secretary of defense of whom we have none, by the way, like when you get around to it. And and so the more that these acting cabinet secretaries are piling up with no new nominees, I do wonder if we're not going to get to a breaking point on on that at some point. Scott, I wonder, like there's obviously, I mean, as Susan's laid out here, a real policy and political consequence to not having leadership at the head of these agencies. I wonder if there's a security consequence as well, which is not to say that they're not capably running their departments day to day, but to the extent that you have all of these sort of ships in the fleet, none of whom who have permanent direction. I mean, I wonder if it I mean, look, I guess if there were a terrorist attack tomorrow, people would immediately raise questions of whether or not the government was unprepared because it didn't have any permanent cabinet secretaries in place. Well, I think that really depends upon the relationship between these acting people and the administration. When I was in government, conventionally in government, when you had an acting, the concern is that they were going to be disconnected from the administration, from the political people. It gave you less sway. It gave you a quieter voice in the room that really mattered on the key issues, which is the White House, the situation around. Maybe that's not the case here. Maybe these acting people, if they're career people, even if they're subordinate officials, actually are being tied to the administration. Maybe they, some of them have more sway with the administration than people that they're replacing. If that's the case, that governance angle may go away. But then that really is where the constitutional question that Susan comes to the fore, which is at that point, the president really is bypassing the Senate advice and consent because he should be nominating these people if it's who he wants in this position to get that sort of feedback from the Senate and put them before them for questioning and answering. The other question, if it's, it's really a staff person, then that is going to cause management problems at the end. Staff people have a different set of incentives. It's harder for them to advance an agenda. It's harder for them to really speak loudly in the interest of their office frequently because they expect to come back and be a career person again in a different administration, in a different situation. So they have to count for those different equities. And so that could, so could itself be a pretty self-defeating um, move in, its, in and of itself for the administration. 
insofar as the people they're bringing in to advance this agenda may not be the people best situated to do it. All told, both are kind of problematic outcomes. I mean, I also think we should keep in mind that uh, there are national security risks and costs every time you have a principal turnover, right? Every time there's a new national security advisor, every time there's a new secretary of defense, every time there's a new secretary of homeland security, that staffing process of reacclimating, of re-educating, uh, of establishing new policies and procedures has to start all over again. And so, you know, for people who've been in this space for a long time, and certainly prior to this administration, they've noticed that some really, really important initiatives appear to have kind of stalled over the past two years. And one of the reasons is because they are constantly in a position of getting, of, of having to do the work all over again, because some key member of the room is suddenly a different person. And, and over time, that imposes costs as well. And do we have any sense, just to close this out, by the way, of why the Secret Service director was removed? Because uh, the Secret Service plays a huge role in border security. And, you know, there are all these migrants coming in across the southern border and the Secret Service isn't doing anything about it. Is this payback for Mar-a-Lago Thumb Drive Lady? Okay, I do want to say one thing in defense of the Secret Service because everyone's making fun of them now for having stuck the thumb drive into a computer. Uh, you know, then apparently the code got executed and people are like, this is InfoSec 101. The thumb drive was plugged into a computer that was designed for that purpose. And you can't search a thumb drive without putting it into a computer. So all these people that are like, you idiots, you inserted the thumb drive into something. Well, like, yeah, that's how thumb drives work. You just you, crack you, it open. You look you for the skull and crossbones. It, presumably, you have to right? put it in the computer to see what's on it. So just a small defense of our poor beleaguered Secret Service agents. <laughs> I, 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 would say, oh, I think it is not clear why the director of the Secret Service. Maybe he thought he was someone else. Like maybe he thought he was in charge of some sort of like, you know, border security. Maybe he's just in a rage. He's like, fire element. everyone. You, you're fired. Bringing Veep to life once again <laughs> in the yeah. random Secret Service firing. Yeah. Uh, okay, I guess we'll see. It may be hard to find the time to sit down and read what you want. You might think you don't have time to find out what books are out there, let alone time to read them and develop yourself. The Blinkist app helps solve these problems. Blinkist is the only app that gives you the key takeaways, what you really need to know from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses those ideas down so you can read or listen to them as 15-minute segments. There are 8 million people using Blinkist right now. No matter how busy these people are, they can get the main points of books quickly without having to read the whole thing. With Blinkist's audio feature, these users can also easily finish highlights of up to four books a day. And it's got a lot of titles that listeners of Rational Security will find interesting. For example, during my commute this morning, I listened to the Blinkist audio version of former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe's book, The Threat. Rational security listeners are familiar with what we all think about the FBI and the Trump administration, and now you can listen to highlights of what Andrew McCabe thinks about it, too. I also listened this week to Blinkist's highlights of Becoming by Michelle Obama. I'm still new to and getting acquainted with Blinkist, and if you're looking to figure out what books are out there and which ones you should pay more attention to, and you want to do this while you're on the subway or, as I was this morning, stuck in traffic or working out, I recommend it. So, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for Rational Security listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash RS to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, 
Blinkist.com slash RS to start your free seven-day trial. Again, Blinkist.com slash RS. So Attorney General Bill Barr said on Tuesday that we should see a redacted version of the Mueller report within a week. So I guess that means like not within the week, within a week. So next Tuesday would be the presumed cutoff for within a week. Already we're hearing uh, a little bit about what some people think of that report or I should say Bill Barr's description of it from his four-page letter, which he has been quick to point out was not a summary. Don't call it a summary. Lawyers uh, from the Mueller team, we understand, have told associates that they've been frustrated with the way that the report is being portrayed. It's a little bit hard to know precisely what they mean on that. Um, ben, let me sort of like ask you to zero in a little bit on this. They don't seem to be suggesting that the report doesn't actually say what Barr says it said, right? There seems to be more of a frustration about the way that he is describing how Mueller and the team arrived, particularly at this decision on what to do about obstruction. So talk a little bit about that. And, 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 and I'm curious too, if you think that Barr's letter has, and we'll talk about this maybe with the group too, sort of set the conditions on how to receive the report or soften the ground, as we might say, such that it's going gonna, it's gonna to lessen the blow. Yeah. So I, I think this is, first of all, a completely predictable result. So uh, and Barr probably has himself to blame for it, even assuming that his uh, non-summary summary is an entirely reasonable one. If you drop a top line of a very complicated document and the top line is in some sense exculpatory, I were not bringing charges on collusion slash conspiracy slash coordination or on obstruction. So you have two favorable top lines, uh, relatively speaking, uh, and you don't mention any of the substance that underlies that, a lot of which is going to be very unflattering or may be very unflattering. And then you go dark for several weeks. You, A, allow this victory lap that the president has been taking, which must be very galling to people who don't feel like they produced a report that was exculpatory. And number two, you allow the sort of wildest theories on all sides to percolate during that period of time. And so I don't think it's surprising at all that there are some people who are uh, mighty frustrated by the situation. That said, in Barr's defense, like I think if the summary, non-summary summary that he gave was reasonable on its own terms, I do think he is correct that he did not represent that as a summary. He represented it as a release of the top line conclusions and said they would produce the document itself as quickly as they can. They seem to be working expeditiously toward it. Uh, and so I do think it is perfectly possible that all of this was done in quite good faith. He released what he felt he could in real time. He's preparing to do a much larger release. That said, I think it was a boneheaded way to do it. And if he'd come and asked me, I would have said this is exactly what was going to happen. And in fact, a few weeks before this thing happened, I very specifically wrote a piece saying, look, here's how Mueller's people should draft this report to avert exactly this problem. So I do think I, do think I get to say this was foreseeable. And I also think Barr 
probably sort of walked into kind of a sandpit that he had dug for himself. I mean, one thing I do think is notable is that based on some reporting, it sounds like the Mueller team may have written precisely the kind of report that you suggested, which is have each section with a detailed executive summary that didn't include grand jury or classified information. You know, again, we're, we're going on news reports, um, but but based on some of the reports of the special counsel's team being unsatisfied with what's happened, they have said that there were summaries at the top of each section, and then someone at the Justice Department determined that they that they needed to be reviewed for classified information or, or grand jury material. So it sounds like there there may have been something that was intended to be prepared for public release and they somehow got stymied in that. Although I, I think the reporting, I forget whether this is in the Post or in the Times, is complicated on this because Barr's people responded to exactly that by saying, wait a minute, on every single one of those pages, there's a notice, this may contain grand jury information. And so I think it's possible that Mueller's people did exactly what I was suggesting, but included as precaution notes that Barr's people quite reasonably looked at and said, we have to do a full review of all of this. I mean, one thing that was, I think, a notable revelation from Barr's appearance on the Hill today is that he offered Mueller the opportunity to review the non-summary summary letter and that Mueller declined. Now, I don't know what you can read into that other than Mueller said, you take your report and I'm going home and I'm not, I don't want to be a part of whatever this public communication is. Um, but I, I do think it probably sort of puts a little bit of water in the Bill Barr acting in good faith bucket because he's saying, look, I, it's not like I just, I took his report. And, and did the summary and sent it out, I, I offered him the opportunity, you know, to weigh in on it. You know, the other thing that, that Barr said today that I, I think is relevant is that he doesn't intend to go to the court to ask permission to uh, to release grand jury material. Now, uh, Barr has said that he wants to release as much of the report as is possible with consistent law and regulation, which is a, a reasonable position. And on at least some materials, he doesn't have an option. That said, there's a, there's a big difference between the position of I'm not going to release grand jury materials absent court permission, and I'm not going to release grand jury materials, and I'm not going to ask for permission to include grand jury materials. There's no indication that he's going to read broadly the ex- the exceptions uh, of the grand jury secrecy statute to say, well, I'm going to include this material under the exemption. And so, you know, there there is a little bit of playing both sides here of saying, oh, you know, I'm going to embrace as much transparency as possible. Well, already on your face, you're not embracing as much transparency as possible because we know you aren't pursuing at least one avenue by which additional disclosure would be possible. I really think at this point, this is a situation where where it's so much of a blank slate. We're stuck in the position where we're projecting some of our underlying assumptions or presumptions onto the situation. We are looking at shadows cast on the wall and just taking guesses about what's actually motivating this. You know, I think at this point, the thing that we can say is that in the best case scenario, Bill Barr is in a very difficult situation. There are probably factors motivating his behavior that are political, that are internal, that may not be out squarely within his mission set that have to do with his relationship with the president, his role as attorney general, his view of the broader equities of this stuff. Only then after we get past that, we get to questions of character and intent and how he interprets this. To me, I think one of the more compelling points, I think Ben made this uh, in an Atlantic piece the other week, is this that at this point, 
we just have had a reasonable time frame and a reasonable process. And the process that he's set forward doesn't sound wildly unreasonable at this point. We need to see the results. If the results come back with huge swaths of information withheld because he chose not to pursue permission to reveal grand jury information, that's going to be problematic. And that will tell us in hindsight what his intent and logic was going into this. If the process were to drag on for several weeks, it doesn't sound like it will. But if it were, that would be problematic. If he were to have coordinated aspects of this more centrally with more political people, that may be problematic. A lot of these variables could still fall and reveal him in a very different light. But at this point, if he sticks to the process, at least we'll be in a position to be able to judge shortly him by the outcome of the process that he's put forward. Yeah, I agree, I agree with that completely. Um, I also think that on Susan's point, uh, with which I also agree, that you know, if you imagine a release and you cannot read the document in a serious way because pages and pages are removed for reasons of grand jury secrecy. And the result is that you actually can't figure out what Bob Mueller concluded on important points. Then I think Susan's point is exactly right. You know, look, you can go to the court and petition for the release of this material. Jaworski did it. Starr sort of did it. I mean, he had a different statutory regime. But on the other hand, if you like, as I suspect that there is not that much grand jury information in here because Bob Mueller mostly didn't conduct this investigation in front of a grand jury. And so you're talking about bits and pieces here and there and you can actually read the thing and there's a few missing spots, but it doesn't impede the reader's ability to find out what Mueller concluded, then I actually think it's quite reasonable not to go to the court uh, for permission because it would slow you down. And there's something to be said for getting for getting this thing done in a in a expeditious fashion. And then we can fight over the details later and litigate of whether they should be made public. So Shane, I sort of have a question for you in terms of what happens as part of the public conversation, but especially sort of the media conversation for reporters who've been covering this for a long time. Let's say the report comes out. There's bad information. There's good information. It's largely consistent with the top line summary that there's no sort of finding of criminality. And then there are these highly technical legal questions, right, especially when it comes down to obstruction. The, the conversation hinges on the meaning of a proceeding for the obstruction statute and Article 2 powers, right, these really technical things. We know that then the two sides of Congress are going to take up, right, since there's plausible arguments on either side. Does it keep going, right? Do people keep covering this? Like what – what happens next? I think there's there's a couple of waves that this thing will go through. The first is that when it drops, there will be just an initial intake where you will see probably essentially live blogging by the large <laughs> organizations where newsrooms will divide this thing up into sections and people will just start pulling out findings. Then you'll see you know, a, a, a whole raft of stories that will take particular sections like what more did we learn about the Russian intervention? What more did we learn about coordination with the campaign? Leaving open to all of this, by the way, that there could be some like headline grabbing revelation of all this. But we will sort of put that through the mill and try and use that to refine our ever-evolving understanding of the narrative around all these events. And then what's going to happen is I think largely it depends on what Congress
Congress does. We're going to go into shift into the traditional mode of then covering the reaction to the report. Um, once we feel like we've sort of done the we've, – we've written about everything we possibly can and tried to exhaust this kind of most important of documents to this two-and-a-half-year almost uh, investigation – so I, I really think that that's 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 it, and I think that the Democrats have already been signaling that their intention is absolutely this keeps going. I mean, even if it comes back with minimal six E redactions, I think Nadler has left left it very clear. We're going to subpoena for the whole document. We need to see everything, even if the public doesn't. But to some degree, I think what the, what happens next is also is conditioned by how much of the report do we see. If we see like eighty five percent of it, then that's pretty good. Also, you know, if it does have something that just makes us go, holy crap, this is a whole new piece of the story we never understood. I think that's the critical point. Yeah. So Nadler has, you know, manned the barricades. But if what comes out in this report is stuff that it makes sense, more sense rather than fighting over the marginal releases from the additional information, if it makes sense to focus on the substance of what comes out, he's going to shift gears real fast to focus on the substance. To put of the wind back in the sails. Put the wind yeah. back in the sails. If, on the other hand, the best, you know, and this is not a merits-based thing. I, I, this is just a piece of political analysis. If what the most sense makes sense, the most sense for Jerry Nadler to do is to fight with Bill Barr over the substance of the over the release. He will fight over the release. But if the release is provides him enough material to go back to talking about the substance of the issue, that's a much more attractive basis for a fight for for Nadler, I think. One of my favorite revelations was that the redactions will be color-coded. Whoever came up with that in a meeting was just like, you know what? Let's color-code them. And as a colorblind person, I am (laughs) furious about that. The one thing I'll say about looking forward to this that I think we may want to prepare ourselves for is that there's going to be a big question here about not just what's in the report, but what didn't make it into the report. And we've seen that come out of a lot of these highly charged events. I think the best example is probably the 9-11 Commission Report, where we saw a decade-long, more than a decade-long battle over whole chapters that the commission staff felt was not worth including, exercised their judgment within the scope of their responsibility. But people on the Hill felt like they had the right to see the notes of this. People involved in the investigation brought that information to folks on the Hill, folks in the media. And there were these stories about this. And I, and I think we're going to see a lot more than just the report come out. The Mueller Commission and the people involved with it, part of the Mueller Commission, Mueller team and people involved with it are going to be part of an ongoing discussion that's going to look a lot beyond what they actually prevent, present to us. Well, I'm sure that in Tehran, they are also eagerly awaiting the Mueller report, as we all are. I suspect not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they may have something else on their mind this week. Um, So the Trump administration announced this week that it is designating Iran's IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, as a foreign terrorist organization. Uh, This would mark the first time that Washington has branded a foreign government entity as a terrorist group. Scott, explain to us first, just briefly remind people what the IRGC is and why is it significant that this is happening and did we expect this or is this genuinely something surprising? 
The IRGC is essentially a, a paramilitary, but that doesn't quite do it justice because it has as much military capability as a lot of conventional militaries. But I'll use the phrase paramilitary force within Iran that is more directly responsive to uh, the more religious leadership, exists outside the conventional chains of command of the military and security forces, and most importantly for the purpose of these sanctions, controls big parts of the Iranian economy, uh, which is kind of a centralist economy in most cases in the IRGC has kind of a system of kickbacks and and corruption and conventional ownership that they use to raise revenue and control parts of the Iranian economy. On top of that, they're also involved with something called the IRGC Quds Force, QF. Uh, and that is the unit of the IRGC that is involved in training, sponsoring, coordinating with different proxy forces all around the world, particularly in the Middle East, particularly in Iraq and Lebanon and a few places where there's a major Shia presence or Hezbollah presence. And that force has always been a turning point here. So the IRGC being designated an FTO is notable because it has this precedential effect. But the real question is how big a difference this actually makes because the IRGC has been designated under existing sanctions regimes for several years. The IRGC QF was designated in 2007. The IRGC itself was designated in 2017 under a separate sanctions regime uh, called the SDG. Regime, uh, which is set up by presidential regulation under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, again, separate from the FTO regime. And that imposed a lot of the same penalties. The big difference here, and it's not it's not nothing, but it's not a major one, is that designation as an FTO means that the US government can go prosecute people who give you material support anywhere in the world, extraterritorial prosecution. That's not something that can happen under AIPA, but AIPA does say that, well, anybody who gives material support to a designated entity under that's an SDGT can themselves be designated SDGT, which carries its own major, major penalties. So in my mind, this is really a pretty marginal add-on to the disincentives that an entity interested in engaging in the IRGC is presented by the U.S. government. So, so then should we read this just before we move on as a largely symbolic gesture or is there some – constituency within the government over the years that's been advocating for doing this? There's definitely a constituency that's been advocating for doing this for a number of years and it's been floated a number of times by the Trump administration. But I do think its import is largely symbolic. I think a lot of the argument why you do this is that it seems like it clearly is a terrorist organization. They are involved in terrorist activities. There's good reasons to believe that's accurate. Why wouldn't we designate them if we're going to do this full pressure campaign on all fronts? Why don't we pursue this front as well? Okay, I want to try to answer that question. And I agree with your legal analysis that the actual amount of tool that this puts in the toolbox is really small. So I don't think it is worth hyperventilating about this either as a terrible thing or as a good thing. That said, it does seem to me significant in one respect, maybe only potential, but I think it's worth talking about, which is I think this is the first time that a governmental entity has been designated under the material support statute, right? We've tended to have this bifurcated understanding where terrorist, non-state terrorist groups we designate under the material support law and state actor groups we treat under IEPA or sanctions regimes of one sort or another. And so my question is, first of all, is this the first real breach of that distinction? And secondly, if it is, is there potential mischief, virtue, uh, or danger in breaching that distinction and taking a material support law that was fundamentally about 
non-state actors and injecting state actorism into it. So I don't think that that's actually that precedent-making. Uh, it is. It is technically precedent-making. This is the first time the FTO regime has been used. And if the government chooses to pursue criminal prosecution against a foreign governmental entity, uh, that may itself be the source of diplomatic tensions and concerns, the idea that the government is criminally prosecuting a foreign government entity for its behavior. Although in this case, terrorism is one of those things where it seems like there's a growing viewpoint, certainly in the United States and to some extent internationally, that terrorism is a sort of offense that just being an official doesn't necessarily get you the license to do that sort of no, thing. No, but I mean any Iranian politician who we could prove beyond a reasonable doubt has helped out the IRGC we could theoretically scoop up when he travels to a friendly country and charge him with material support. And that is not something we've done with other – I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean maybe, maybe that's a great use of this statute. It does strike me as different from uh, – you know, it's not like U U.S. persons are raising money for the IRGC. So you're not going to see – the classic material support. They're not running training camps that U.S. persons are running off to train in. But I do think you the interface with the government of Iran allows potential criminalization of our relationship with the state of Iran that particularly if you, say, replicated that with other countries that had, you know, terrorist engaged entities that were sort of part of their government, you could imagine that being a big change in U.S. policy. Perhaps. But, you know, at the same time, the United States could already go after Iranian officials for providing material support to Hezbollah, right? That's the start case right now. So I'm not sure. I think the act would be if they choose to try and prosecute people for that sort of government conduct. I don't think the designation itself necessarily changes that much. Again, we've designated government entities under sanctions regimes for the last 17 years. Right. And so then I do think that the timing, and, and this gets a little bit to um, to what extent is the Trump administration sort of, or the State Department under the Trump administration entitled to the presumption of good faith. And that's that, um, does this timing have anything to do with the uh, um, Israeli elections today, right? This is certainly a tremendous gift to Benjamin Netanyahu. Israelis are, are going to the polls right now in a very close election. And so there's always a little bit of that suspicion that when you have uh, questionable efficacy and the timing is such, right, was, was that any piece of it? You know, one thing I, I, I would note is um, I am shocked that any reporter would be covering this story um, without referencing back, and I know I've talked about this story on the podcast before, um, Adam Davidson's piece in The New Yorker from I think two years ago at this point entitled Donald Trump's Worst Deal. In that, he lays out a very, very compelling case for the Trump Organization's partners in an Azerbaijan hotel um, being essentially uh, essentially engaged in money laundering on behalf of IRCG, including sanctioned individuals. Uh, it includes, uh, Adam Davidson actually tweeted this, that um, Alan Garten, the Trump Organization General Counsel, has acknowledged that Trump and Ivanka knew, uh, knew their, uh, their Baku Azerbaijan partners were likely laundering money for the IRGC. And so to the idea that we would now be having all this reporting about this new designation without, uh, to some extent, sort of falling back on uh, rooting this in, in some of Trump's prior business practices, I, I do think is a pretty big oversight because I never understood why that story didn't get more pickup. 
One sort of immediate question I have as to consequences is one of the, um, not just this administration, but also prior administration's accusations against uh, IRGC is that they have been involved in essentially the hostage taking or arrests of dual national uh, Iranian and U.S. citizens, whether or not this designation is going to make negotiation and engagement in those circumstances that much more difficult. So if this really is a largely symbolic gesture um, and we are actually going to pay consequences you know, as it relates to, to American citizens, um, you know, lives and, and freedom, whether or not um, that's a real fear or, or that's just not something that it was already a, a sort of a fraught engagement. And so the designation doesn't actually make any difference. And if I can tack on to that, and maybe Scott, you can answer this too. I know the CIA was against this designation, or at least some parts, because they felt that this would create a risk to U.S. intelligence officers. Maybe you can point to that too, just briefly. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a very significant action, but it's not because of what it does to the IRGC. It's significant because the Trump administration here is taking an action which has a lot of collateral consequences for United States policy in the region as it relates to Iran that may flow from it in terms of Iran's response. Certainly, the hostage taking is a consideration there. I don't see any way this would pose an additional legal obstacle on top of additional sanctions regimes to that necessarily, particularly because the thing it unleashed is criminal prosecution to which the government has a fair amount of discretion. So on top of that, it seems like whatever barriers may have existed, they found ways around in prior negotiations. But there's lots of other ways that this could really compromise U.S. interests. The hostage taking itself is concerning. Iran has in the past used proxy forces to target American uh, forces, American diplomats, American uh, military pre presence in countries like Iraq and Lebanon. Remember, just at the end of last year, we saw the United States close its consulate in Basra because Basra was taking incoming fire and they blame that on Iran-associated militias credibly. Uh, and there's no reason to think that we're not going to see these similar pressure points being exerted against diplomatic presence and military presence in these countries. Now, diplomats understand when they go into these situations, they have a dangerous job and it's part of the job. And you accept that. I was a former diplomat. I served in Iraq and I considered that part of my job. I understood that people may try and kill me as part of my as part of my day-to-day -day work. But that doesn't mean that you expect the government to treat it callously or to value it so lowly. And that's the part of this that I find really troubling. This is a symbolic action. It does not give them that much advantage. I suspect this is the reason why the CIA and the Defense Department and other agencies also took issue with this action because it, it gets very little material benefit except perhaps a domestic political benefit for being able to say we are in fact doing everything. But it has real consequences on the ground for Americans who have volunteered to put their lives in danger. Uh, and that's just like we saw in Venezuela, where the United States was willing to put diplomats in harm's way in Caracas uh, to make a symbolic point there. Here again, we see the administration really taking these steps that, to try and score these symbolic victories without really taking wrestling with the impact on the ground that it means for, for Americans. And it's particularly ironic when you think it's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, somebody who is you know, a lead warrior in the Benghazi hearings uh, and spent years bringing the uh, scrutiny on the Obama administration for supposedly accepting undue risks in Libya. Here, they seem to be doing the same for far less reason with far less consideration. Okay. Let's move on to object lessons. Uh, I didn't even ask if anyone has one, but I'm going to go first in case you're stealing mine, which is possible. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, mine is actually so based on our, our show last week, about thumb drives. And if you find a thumb drive lying in a parking lot, you should definitely just take it and put it in your computer. 
a listener has actually uh, made a mock-up for us of some new merch. It's Rational Security Thumb Drives. <laughs> that is never going to happen. But those thumb drives, that mock-up is awesome. They look amazing. They've got the logo. They've got the title. Uh, it says, underneath Rational Security, the Mar-a-Lago Thumb Drive Lady Edition, Thumb Drive. On the other side, <laughs> the other side in quotes, stick me in your computer. <laughs> this was just brilliant. And um, as badly as I want to sell these on the site, I think it's probably never going to happen. But thank you. Dear listener, for uh, entertaining us with these. Um, who else has objects? Uh, I have an object lesson. So this is the New Yorker asked uh, five graphic designers to design fiction, like fictitious covers for the release of the Mueller report. Um, and they are all interesting and hilarious. Um, but the best one, and I'm going through, there's five of them. My all-time favorite is this one, which is just a picture <laughs> of an adorable kitten with the words, the Mueller report, the finding of the office of the special counsel of the Russia, of Russia interference in the 2016 election, um, I would definitely buy that book um, and think Mueller should use it as the real cover for the report to bring us all some joy and happiness. Yeah. Ben? Yeah, I was wondering about that, whether the point of that kitten was just that it was a cute kitten or that it looked really curious. Uh, and what's in this? Yeah, exactly. What's collusion. in this report? Yeah. Um, what is collusion? So my object lesson is a Bob Mueller puppet, which I cannot confirm or deny that I had made. But I've decided that, you know, every day or so, I am uh, going to be tweeting the Bob Mueller puppet doing uh, interesting stuff. So uh, one day he uh, was drinking some bourbon. And uh, one day he was... Um, uh, reading Leon Jaworski's book, uh, The Right and the Power. And today uh, he has his hands on a glowing orb. Uh, and I just think, you know, it's time that we start making this whole thing uh, funny and amusing. So uh, uh, Bob Mueller, puppet, uh, welcome to the world. He looks so sad and forlorn. <laughs> yeah. He's like, no one's going to read my whole report. That summary wasn't very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't appreciate your insinuation. <laughs> uh, that's pretty – you didn't have any object lessons, do you? No. I could come up with them, but I could skip it. Yeah, we'll skip it. We'll skip it. <laughs> uh, well, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find all kinds of merch, sadly, not the thumb drive, lady thumb drives. <laughs> Maybe uh, we should make wooden, the fake thumb drives. Oh, that'd be good. Like it'd be like like a gag. That just thumb ruin your computer. Keep sticking it in. You put it in, and then it like it like it's, it's glued in. Basically, it's like don't put anything in this. Nice. We can make those. Uh, you can find that at is it Lawfare Store? The Lawfare Store. The Lawfare Store. dot com. You can find that there. You can also make a contribution to Lawfare. That's At right. the Support Lawfare page, you can become one of our monthly donors and keep rational security alive and kicking. That's right. And maybe get a challenge coin or a wooden thumb drive. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and a review. It really helps other people find the show. Our audio engineer this week is Michaela Fogel. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and his Ray Charles tribute, Hit the Road Jack. And Jill, and Joe, and John, and Jenny, and Jacqueline, and Jim. And Kirsten. <laughs> and Kirsten, with all of them. 
<laughs> and if you work for the Secret Service, get out too. <laughs> what was the deal with the Secret Service? He fired him. Yeah, I know, but like, we still don't know why. What did he do? I don't know. I don't understand it. Maybe Sophia Yando's the answer. On behalf of my friends, Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and Scott Anderson, I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye. 